can very easily forget that you're in an objectively dangerous place. Being inspired by professional athletes, for example, and it's definitely something that I think about. The photos that we take and when we're posting things, it's almost always on a beautiful day with the great conditions. And so people don't realize that to get to that day, there's 20 days before that when it wasn't perfect. They think, oh, well, it's always like that. Oh, I could go up in a t-shirt. And so I think that we, we have a responsibility to communicate about the fact that yet every day is not like this in the mountains. Welcome to Out of Adventuring, the show about explorers and inspiring adventurers and the details behind their incredible journeys. They not only take us to their hardships and highlights, but also let us know what they have learned on these trips that has changed them and their everyday life. Hi, I'm Torben from the World Explorers Collective. And today with me is Hilary Girardi, an American mountain runner who just broke the record for the fastest woman to run up and down Mont Blanc. Mont Blanc is Europe's highest mountain at over 4,800 meters. And the starting point for her extreme adventure was the French town of Chamonix, in which she also lives. She had to scale around 4,000 meters in height and run over 30 kilometers. And she did all of that in just 7 hours and 20 minutes. Usually climbers take days, spend the night at the mountain in order to make it up and down. And the fact that Hillary was able to do that comes from years and years of training. But Hillary is actually not a runner. She said herself, if she were to compete in a marathon, she would completely lose out. She comes from the mountains. Her love are the mountains. She grew up in the United States in the state of Vermont and as a teenager worked on mountain huts. And... While she was working on those huts, they were starting to play pranks on other huts, on neighboring huts. And very quickly she realized that if she was fast running down and up those mountains and running to the different huts and just being able to run across mountains gives her a great advantage when it comes to playing pranks. So out of this childish competition became something that is now a professional athletic career. Mountain huts that are a little bit different like, than the ones we have in Europe, but it was like the, called the White Mountains, a chain of mountains. And we would go play pranks on the other huts at night. And so it, we'd have to, a very short amount of time to do it in because you had to get back before breakfast. And so that's like sort of how I first started like being like, ah, can I get from here to there, you know, before, before breakfast starts so I can serve our guests. So, so I think that's kind of where it started. And the mountains where I'm from are not very high. So I'm from the state of Vermont and I've spent a lot of time where I was working was in New, was in New Hampshire. And I think it's probably around like 1,600 or maybe 1,800 meters high. So it's not really high, but the trails are really gnarly. So I got used to just moving through really technical terrain while I was there. And then it was about 13 years ago that I moved to France. And it was after moving to France with my husband that I really, truly started running. And But I would definitely say that it was born of this desire just to be like, oh, like, could I go from here to here? Or could I do like from here to there? Just on my on my own, like only human powered. And, and that's where it was really born for me. And then the racing just kind of was like, oh, 
well, you know, I need I need something to do. <laughs> I'd love to find a new activity, find a new community. I was living in Grenoble, France, and oh, nice. uh, I was looking for ways to kind of make friends and find my own community. And, and it was a, a great way for me to do that. But so, yeah, I mean, working in huts, alpine climbing, doing some rock climbing, skiing, lots of mountain activities before I actually started running. But then once I did start running, I kind of like relatively quickly figured out that my niche was more technical races. Like I'm not the fastest flat runner. If you put me on the road, I get bored quickly and and I'm not actually that fast on a road marathon. I'd be terrible. But put me in really technical terrain or really steep terrain, which is kind of like what you were what you were getting at. And there mm. I really found that I was having fun and I, you know, was was able to excel in that. And I think that in some ways, one of the things that I love so much about moving through technical terrain is that it demands this like total presence. It's, I think it's almost like a, like a mindfulness exercise, almost like a kind of meditation because you have to be like ultra concentrated on what you're doing and where you are. Mm. And if you like, if your head is somewhere else, then you'll trip and fall or you'll slip or like, you know, something, you know, can happen. And so you have to be 100% focused and present where you are. And so I think that's something that really appealed to me from the beginning. When you said 100% present to where you are, you mentioned at the same time, yet it's kind of meditative. So I think there's a strong correlation. Obviously, being present in the moment is, I think, what meditation is all about. I heard from a lot of people, I'm not a big runner myself, but I heard from a lot of people when they start running and they cross, you know, five, 10 kilometers, then they get in a meditative state because it's that's them saying boring and so the the mind just starts to to drift what you describe is obviously probably not boring because you need to be very very focused on not really falling twisting your ankle it's very challenging terrain is is it in that case a different kind of mindfulness that you think you have in the mountain versus a runner who runs a straight line or a swimmer who just you know swims back and forth I would I would definitely say yes, because for me, again, it's like this question of what kind of terrain am I moving in? And I've found that, as I said, I get bored if I'm running on a flat road. Sometimes I'll swim laps in a pool, you know, and but I do get bored. Whereas when you're running on trails and you're running, especially on like technical trails or or, you know, kind of moving through this mountainous terrain. Every single step you take is different. There's no like repetitive movement where you can just kind of go on autopilot. You're just like, you have to be focused because everything, every single step is going to be a little bit different. And I think that, yeah, that's definitely a little bit something that, that sets it apart from a more repetitive sport, like running on the road or on a track or or swimming in the pool or something like that. You really have to be on it. And I, I mean, I do, I would say that like, we do sometimes talk about what we call like a flow state almost, like where you you don't even like see the miles pass by. But I would say that when I have experienced that myself in the mountains, it is 
directly correlated with just like my body functioning, moving smoothly. And just it goes by because I, I'm not thinking about anything else. It's just like, okay, this rock, this, you know, this patch of dirt yeah. is like kind of direct. Well, you, as you said, you moved, you moved to the Alps about 12 years ago. Was it particular because they are the Alps and you just wanted to fuel your passion for the mountains even more? And then the question, why did you move to the Alps? And you have also a lot of, I mean, you've, you know, obviously super great that you're here in Europe, <laughs> but you have a lot of mountains in the US. So what made you decide, okay, I, I, I leave the US and I want to, I want to be close to the Alps in this case. So if I'm being honest, it was about love. <laughs> oh. um, yeah, I know. <laughs> my, my partner in, throughout university, he had studied abroad in France and he really wanted to go back. And he asked me if I wanted to go. And I didn't really have anything else to do right after university. And I was like, you know, yeah, I'll go ski for the winter and then go back, move back. And, and then, uh, you know, so I, I followed him over and now that partner is now my husband <laughs> and we awesome. decided really to stay because of our love of the mountains. And I would say that something that's really special in the Alps that we don't have in the U.S. So something that differentiates a little bit in terms of having it be a place to actually live in is that you have a proximity between the mountains and like cities and towns that we don't necessarily have in the U.S. In the U.S., the U.S. is huge and there are incredible mountains and these big wide open spaces. But to live uh, like in a community in close proximity to the mountains, we don't really have that in the same way. The other thing about the Alps is that we, like, you have this elevation change from the valley floor to the top of the mountain that, like, you don't really see anywhere else. You know, if you go to Colorado, for example, like, you know, the, the difference in elevation from the valley floor to the top of the mountain, maybe the valley floor is at you know, 2,500 meters and the top is 4,000 meters, but the most mm. you can get is 1,500 meters. Where I'm living now in Chamonix, you know, I live at 800 meters and the top of Mont Blanc is 4,800. So you've got, you know, 4,000 meters of elevation change. And that's something that's really particular. It means that, you know, I get to enjoy myself, but it also means that we get to see in a really small amount of space a lot of different like ecosystems. So you get like the valley floor and there's agriculture and there's industry and then you get into the forest and then you get into alpine pastures and then you get into, you know, rocks and then snow and like, so in a pretty small amount of area, you get to see all of these incredible different things. And I think that's something that's really special here. So it might not be what drew me here to begin with, but it's certainly one of the things that's made me stay here. I think I need to reach out to the French tourism board and ask them if they want to sponsor part of that. <laughs> that was definitely an anthem to the Alps. But yeah. you, you're right. I, and I've never really thought about it in that sense that the great thing about the region that you are living now in particular, even if you wanted to go to the beach, it's, it's just hours drive away in our, in our days and yeah. you, have, you have cities around and it's still very centrally located and you're not in this maybe more isolated bubble that you might be in some of the U.S. cities. And, you know, I guess Colorado would be one of those states where everything revolves around the mountains. And for a long, long time, 
So I just this past weekend had a race in Austria and I was able to take the train from my home to the race and back. And it's far away. I mean, it was, I think, nine and a half hours. But to be able to do that is just pretty incredible. Mm. I'm like always shocked when I go home to the U.S. and I'm just like, really? Like, we don't have public transport? Like, come on, guys. <laughs> yeah, it's such a European thing. I've always heard that in general, the mountains are different in the U.S., but not only that, but also that the way how the people approach them, the European Alps are, are guided mountains to a large extent. So if you are not a mountaineer, you can you can get a guide and it's very common practice to get guides that bring you up, for example, Mont Blanc or that bring you up other very high mountains and only selected people actually go by themselves. And in the U.S., that's supposed to be a bit different where you need to acquire a lot of the skills yourself before you actually start climbing these high mountains because the guiding culture is a bit different that you don't really go immediately and just say okay let's get a guide so is that really the case that you feel that that there's a different level of approaching the mountains in in the alps and in the u.s so anything that i say about the u.s i should preface by the fact that i've been 13 years in France. So it's like, I've been away from there for a while. And then the other thing is that I come from the Northeastern U.S. So my experience with, you know, sort of like the Rockies, for example, is pretty limited. But mm. what I would certainly say, and this is something we talk about. So my husband is a mountain guide and guiding is a like, it's a real profession here. You know, you've had the, the Chamonix Guide Company has existed for 200 years. So it's very much a part of the culture and to, to have hiking guides and climbing guides. And, and so I do think that it's kind of embedded culturally. I think that in the U.S., you know, you can find guides. There's definitely a culture that's a bit different in that a lot of people don't really see it as like a career or a profession. It's kind of like, oh, you might just like bring people out for a while after college and then, you know, and then you'll get a real job. <laughs> so that's certainly different. And then mm. the other thing is that the U.S. does have kind of this culture of like rugged individualism and that like you got to fend for yourself and you got to be able to do it on your own. And I think that informs people's approach to the mountains, the extent to which people learn a whole skill set before they start going in the mountains, I think is kind of debatable, but you have people who go with no experience hiking, and then you get people who like build up a ton of experience, but aren't going to go with a guide for, for something more serious. But I, I would, I think that like, you know, is maybe chalked up to this idea that like, you know, I'm autonomous, I'm independent, and I'll learn mm. to do it on my own. Yeah, I think both of them they have definitely their yeah their great their great elements to this, and I I think it's amazing that in the French Alps guiding is so accessible and it's so professional and the quality is so high, and at the same time also I like the idea of the more American approach to say well you know you need to sort of get your skills before you actually start going up these mountains. I think both yeah. of them are actually quite great. And I was just curious to hear your opinion on that one. Yeah. I mean, I think that to, to a certain extent as well, and one of the things that I really appreciate about the approach of like skills acquisition is that versus you do see some guides who are taking clients out here who have no interest in learning about the skills. They just want to like check off 
that they got to the top of X, Y, or Z mountain. And I think that's really unfortunate. And so I, I like sort of, you know, combining the approaches and saying each person can develop their own skill set to be able to do things on their own. And sometimes you can get a guide that, you know, really you can look for a guide that specifically is there to teach you skills so you could do it on your own. And I like that approach. Yeah, I, I agree. And at the same time where you live in, in Chamonix, so right on the foot of the Mont Blanc, you probably have a lot of people that underestimate the Mont Blanc. And so they think, well, it's, you know, the highest mountain in Europe. How, how hard can that be? And you can technically walk up there in that sense. We will get to that later. <laughs> you obviously did that. But so there's only a certain element and a certain degree of mountaineering that maybe some people have in their mind needed. But a lot of people completely underestimate how challenging it really is. And uh, you even gave an example once that the mayor of a of a town now had to set up set out a list of what people actually need to bring because just people didn't didn't think at all and just started running up there for various reasons inspired by professional athletes. Um how 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 is that for you? Do you do you see that a lot in in the mountains that on the one hand side of course it's great that there are a lot of people want to go to the mountains, a lot of people want to have that experience, but sometimes there's just this element, especially where you live, that maybe the understanding of how alpine it actually is and how much skill is actually needed to climb above 4,000 meters in the Alps? I mean, certainly you see a really wide range of the amount of knowledge and experience that people have when they go out in the mountains. And I, I think, you know, by the number of rescue helicopters that are buzzing around the mountains on a sunny day like today, you know, there are a lot of people who are getting themselves in trouble and need to need to be rescued. And I think that is because of that proximity, you know, so I was talking about like how in a really short amount of distance, you could go from a thousand meters to 4,800 meters. And that's incredible. But because it's like not that far away, people definitely underestimate like how serious it is and that essentially like the conditions that you have at the top of Mont Blanc are going to be closer to what you would have in the Arctic than what you would have at the bottom of the valley, even though it's just a few kilometers away. And so I think that definitely leads people to underestimate it. I also think, and, and I've had, you know, some personal experience with this, but that when there is infrastructure that is built, so I'm talking about like ski lifts and gondolas, mm. and here we have the famous Aigri de Midi, which takes you up to 3,008 meters, 3,800 meters, you can very easily forget that you're in an objectively dangerous place. So basically, you know, like parachutes you into this place, the top of this mountain, that if you don't have to like walk there on your own and see how all of the environment changes, it's really easy to forget how serious it is. And I think, you know, one of the things also you, you mentioned being inspired by professional athletes, for example, and it's definitely something that I think about is that, you know, the photos that we take and when we're posting things, it's almost always like on a beautiful day with the great conditions. And so people don't realize that like, To get to that day, there's like, you know, 20 days before that when it wasn't perfect. Oh, and so they think, oh, well, it's like always like that. Oh, I could go up in a T-shirt. And so I think that, you know, we we have a responsibility to communicate about the fact that like, yeah, every day is not like this in the mountains. And, 
you need to be prepared, not just for when it's a beautiful day and the weather and the conditions are perfect, but you also need to be prepared and have the skills for if something goes wrong, if the weather goes bad, if the conditions weren't what they thought they, that you were going to be, you were going to find up there. And I think that that for me is one of the really big things and something you and I talked about before is the importance of being able and ready to adapt. When you're out in the mountains, I think that's one of the biggest skills that I've learned is that approaching any mountain project that people should be thinking about having their plan A, their plan B, their plan C, you know, what are places if I want to go, you know, like at what point, what time do I need to turn around by? Or if I get to this point, you know, is there an alternative route to get down? Can I always reverse the way that I'm going? And then reading what's going on around you, whether it's the conditions or the weather is changing or there are other people out on the route and being ready to adapt to what you're going to do and do something different and see that that has value in it as well. Mm. You once said that for you, part of an adventure is uncertainty. How much uncertainty is acceptable for you in an adventure? And when is it, you know, reckless? Mm. I mean, I think it's interesting because a lot of the people that you've had on, on uh, your podcast before are people who probably embrace a higher level of uncertainty than me because they're going places that are really far away from home or they're going on expeditions that involve even more uncertainty for me. I think that you know, over the years for me, I've, my my taste for risk taking has diminished a bit. Mm -hmm. And I, for me, I think it would be hard to, to say exactly, you know, what level of uncertainty. I think there's always uncertainty about and about whether or not I will achieve my goal and about whether I'll get to the end. But I, I don't, generally ever want to have uncertainty about my ability to turn around and call it a day if the conditions aren't good or I'm not feeling great. And so, you know, I think there is the question about uncertainty. Am I going to be capable to do this in the time I wanted or go as far as I wanted? That I'm fine with. I think that's something that's really, really cool. But uh, being able to have a relatively safe bail option is something that I I don't usually go into an adventure without having some certainty that I have some recourse, whether it's I'm going to have to bivouac here and I have enough gear to make that happen, or I'm going to be able to, you know, sort of turn here and get somewhere where I, so I can get off the mountain more quickly. Talking about the gear, and maybe this is the point where we destroy someone's <laughs> dream to simply run up Mont Blanc tomorrow and purposefully so, because in a bit tying a lot of the points together that you've mentioned, starting, let's say, with the social media aspect that, you know, you see pictures of runners just like you in almost shorts and a t-shirt up on top of these mountains, just breaking record of running up and down Mont Blanc in just a matter of hours. And then there's a lot going on behind the scenes that maybe is not always visible to the people and also of course they're not aware of the skill set that you've actually acquired over the years and that it that it's not about I'm a good marathon runner so I'm now running up Mont Blanc it's you know a little hill an incline mm. um, and obviously you also don't bring let's say unnecessarily amount of gear because weight is so important you need to run up and down the mountain in your record attempt 
well, it's not an attempt. You broke it. So it was a <laughs> successful attempt in that in that case. But you've planned it meticulously in terms of what do I have to wear at what stage? Where do I have to have, let's call it people and rescue opportunities and what needs to happen when things go wrong? So if one were to try that, like what are all the things they actually have to consider or then the other way around, what did you consider behind the scenes logistics when you decide, okay, I'm now going to run up and down Mont Blanc in just over seven hours? I think it's a really great question. And I think that, you know, that's it. among the messages that I want to share with people when I'm talking about that, that record in particular, as I mentioned, sort of at the beginning, my background comes more from the mountains rather than coming from a running background. So I actually have sort of years of accumulated experience in the mountains. And then also, you know, this year alone, for example, I spent a lot of time sort of doing skills practice. And so there's like this accumulation of skills that you're going to want to have. And so that'll include like, you know, cramponing technique and rescue techniques. If someone didn't want to fall into a crevasse, like how do you get them out? So you've got sort of that whole skill set that you want to build up. You also probably, you know, wouldn't have seen the part where I was acclimating. So like acclimatizing, spending time up in high elevation to get used to it. I also was on the route at least six times this spring. So I could be making sure I knew where the right passage was. I wasn't just following a GPX track on my watch, right? Like I, I knew it very, very well. Um, mm -hmm. And I knew exactly where I was going to be going. And every time when I was out there and I wasn't going for speed, I had so much more stuff with me, right? Like I had a, a big backpack and I had bigger boots and I had, mm -hmm. you know, everything I would need to go more slowly. And so I wouldn't get cold. So I wouldn't get hungry and all of this. So I think, you know, all of sort of that initial preparation that I had. Another thing is that you know, I, I think I told you I blocked two months out for this project this spring where I like pretty much didn't uh, agree to do anything else. Like even I was hesitant to like make a doctor's appointment because I was like, but what if it's the day when the conditions are good? And so, right, when you see the person or you see the photos of me doing Mont Blanc in, you know, really quickly, well, it wasn't just like any day. I didn't pick that day a year in advance and say on, you know, June 17th, I'm going to go. I was really, really closely watching the weather and the conditions. So I know a bunch of mountain guides, including my husband. And, you know, we were, I was talking to them about what the conditions were like. The hot caretaker was telling me about how the snow was refreezing almost every day. I was talking to meteorologists about, you know, where the zero degree isotherm was going to be. So it's not something that I would encourage anybody to approach. Just like, oh yeah, like I'm, I'd love to do that this summer and I'm, I'll be there the second week of August. So I'm going to go for it. There's a, to get the right day when it's possible to go fast and light. It's not accidental. You really have to kind of, you know, plan for that. And I think, you know, so that's a luxury that I have in some ways with Mont Blanc because I, I live here. And so I, I can, you know, keep that big window to go back to the idea of adaptation really quickly is that obviously 
we don't, not everyone's going to live here. And most people are going to have a relatively short amount of time that they're on vacation for, and they can only choose that window. And I think that's okay. But in that case, you should say, okay, I have this skill set. I have this gear and equipment with me. These are the conditions I'm looking at. What is possible? Rather than saying, I must do Moblock Summit, you can say, okay, I've got all of these other things lined up. What else could I be doing? And being willing to adapt your objectives according to what the conditions are that you're looking at. And I think that's super important. And then another thing that we talked about, you know, and, and you mentioned is gear, right? And so I had all of the gear on the required gear list, which, you know, some people kind of joke about and, and rightly so. But at the same time, it's really important to be reminding people that you don't actually go in shorts and a t-shirt. Uh, you have a whole bunch of other stuff with you. And so I had, you know, boots that could take a semi-automatic crampon, crampons with a steel front point and aluminum bag. I had an ice axe, et cetera. I'm lucky as a professional athlete to have access to really lightweight gear and anybody can have access to it, but it's expensive to invest in all of these really lightweight things. But so we, I mean, you and I talked about that, like we had pretty much, you know, very similar gear when you were in the mountains last summer to when I had, except that mine was all like much lighter. And I was like shaving off grams. I was like, you know, the bar in the crampon, I cut it shorter so that I didn't have any extra weight. And I was kind of adjusting all these little things to try to make it as light as possible, but as safe as possible. Yeah. And I think one of those gear items that obviously you don't bring, which is extremely dangerous mm -hmm. if you don't, is warm clothes or like particularly warm clothes, puffy jackets, these kind of things, because you don't rest, you, you, you're always moving. But if you had to stand still for five minutes, you, you would be probably in quite a lot of trouble. And that's also, I guess, one of those items that you, when you go to the mountains, you very quickly forget what happens when you stop moving. Um, all of a sudden, then the windshield comes and then you're duped. And um, if you don't have all the jackets that are, you know, super heavy that you yeah. need to carry up and they seem kind of unnecessary while you walk. But the second you rest. Yeah, um, as, a, as a general rule, when I'm getting out in the mountains, I aim to always have a layer that I'm, that I don't need. Like it. <laughs> And, but it's, but it's for real that the day of my record attempt. So I ended up, I had, you know, short sleeve, long sleeve, fleece, puffy and windbreaker. And I was totally fine. A couple of points I stopped for just a little bit, but I did by the time, by the time I got to the summit, I had everything on. I had all of those layers on. What I did do sort of as a, a measure of safety is I had a, a good friend who was going, he went up Mont Blanc that day as well. And he, I knew exactly where he was. He knew where I was. I had a, a GPS tracker on me as well. And he had puffy pants, puffy, like a big puffy jacket, extra mittens, extra hat, all of these things for me so that if I ended up in a situation where I needed to stop, he could be there to, you know, give me all the layers that I needed. I hope that now clarifies that no one just runs up Mont Blanc in shorts, even if pictures might suggest that. Yeah. <laughs> um, just to, to do our fair share of responsible information here. Talking about responsibilities, you live in the mountains and you see firsthand what is happening to the mountains. And also 
last year or not even last year even even last weekend i was again in in the mountains and i had to bail the plants because of severe weather that just came in and just completely destroyed anything you know that you could possibly walk up last year there was a quite a unique season in chamonix around the mont blanc because it was just simply too warm which is a fairly bad thing when it comes to high mountains in that case, it was due to rocks falling down, and which is obviously an extremely dangerous event. But how do you see, in general, the, the climate change impacting the mountains that you now lived in for over 14 years, and also, in, in general, the impact that is maybe not even so seen outside of the mountaineering world? Yeah, so you're absolutely right. I mean, we like right now, as we know, like, you know, most of the world is experiencing heat waves right now. And so people are definitely experiencing this extreme heat. And it might seem like, oh, well, it's a lot cooler in Chamonix, right, than it is in Rome or in Greece or in Phoenix in the U.S. So maybe we're not experiencing climate change. But actually, the truth of the matter is, is that the Alps are experiencing climate change twice as fast as most of the rest of the northern hemisphere. And so temperatures are rising. We're just like kind of starting from a lower temperature. And and so we're not getting, you know, 46 degree heat, but we're getting temperatures that are way higher than, you know, we we ever see as a general rule here. And the way that that is impacting the mountains, well, there's a ton of different ways. When I speak, you know, specifically just like about my project on, on Mont Blanc, it was a project that I had for several years and we weren't getting enough snow in the winter to fill in the crevasses where I wanted to be, where I needed to cross. And so I think that's an indication of one of the things that we're seeing. So like we're seeing more droughts. We're seeing in winter the zero degree isotherm. So where snow, where precipitation is falling as snow instead of as rain is moving higher and higher up. So we're getting more rain. So that's what we really saw is that it was a drought. And then when precip did fall, it was as rain. So it didn't like the snow didn't land and stay on the glaciers. And then so we see a lot of glacier retreat. Another thing that we see are these extreme weather events where it'll get really hot. We have heat waves and it stays hot for a long time. And that creates kind of this inertia where things start to warm up and then it's kind of hard to slow it down. So even after the temperature, like the air temperature drops for a little while, the heat is still having this effect because we get this inertia. And then we see a lot of permafrost melt. So permafrost, for, for those of your listeners, if they don't know, I mean, the name is in it. It's like permanently frozen. And we know that there's a lot of permafrost in the ground, in the Arctic, and sort of, you know, in way northern Europe. But how we see it here in the Alps is that permafrost essentially can act like glue holding mountains together. So mountains aren't necessarily just like a monolith of rock, right? It's not just like one giant rock. It's lots of rocks kind of stuck together. And some of them are like balanced perfectly. And some of them are literally like glued on by frozen ice. And when that melts, things can fall down. And that has a, you know, it's extraordinarily dangerous. In Chamonix, we've had, you know, really big rockfall events. The most famous ones were in the heat waves in 2003, 2005 on the Drew when the whole face of the mountain came down. But what you were talking about with rockfall, that was maybe not permafrost, but it was this area that 
at the top of the mountain that usually stays permanently frozen was melting and that was going down behind the rocks, the like water. And then overnight it freezes and expands and then makes things unstable and they can fall. So like you see a lot of different phenomena that are going on at the same time. We're also seeing the plants, the vegetation is changing. The animals are having to adapt. They're moving upslope up the mountain. So like in Chamonix, for example, we have this one glacier, the Glacier de Pelerin, which has receded a ton. And there is, we found at a place where there was a glacier in 2008, we found a tree already growing, like a large tree already growing up. So I think that the apps are going to be changing really fast. And that's one of the reasons why it's interesting, right? Because I was talking about like all these different ecosystems stacked on top of each other in the mountains. But then if you were to put it on the flat, on the horizontal, that'd be like hundreds of kilometers and so it's harder to see changes in adaptation because a species would have to like travel north really far. Whereas here they can just travel upslope like 100 meters and find a different ecosystem. So we see plants and animals that like move up the mountain as they go. But the mountains are because it's like conical, it's a cone shape. There isn't space for all of them. So some species are probably going to be dying out in the next, you know, 30, 30 years or so. It is a very interesting perspective and something I've never looked at it this way, how you explain it, that obviously because you're going up, the absolute change, if you said 100 meters, five degrees more, it's it's nothing compared to, you know, when you're talking kilometers and 10 and 20 degrees. But when you look at it from a percentage point of view of the whole ecosystem, then obviously, yeah, moving two, 300 meters up a mountain is, you know, five to 10% of the entire height of the mountain that suddenly yeah. is completely yeah. changing. And and um, just the surface is reduced. So like we take some species, like what we call Arctic alpine species. So there are a lot of the Arctic alpine species are going to be like the animals that change color in the winter, you know, like a, a, a hare, like the rabbit that turns white in the winter or the rock ptarmigan. And we see them a lot. There's like a lot left up in the Arctic, but down in the Alps, they're like relics of the last ice age. And they're moving upslope because they need the snow. Like they can only be camouflaged when they're in the snow. But if there's less and less snow, they're moving up. And then there's just like less and less space for them up high. So it's, mm. a, I mean, it's a, for those species that are kind of emblematic species of the Alps, they're, they're definitely losing out. What can be done against that? Obviously, you and I and anyone individually, it's very hard to change the, the overall weather impact that is essentially hitting the Alps. But how is it, let's say in Chamonix, how are people trying to tackle this change that is happening? Well, so, I mean, there's kind of like, there, there are multiple different things i think you know one right is the question of climate change and that's really a global problem and so we can't have an immediate direct impact like if all of the people of chamonix decided to act that wouldn't change climate change it would have a good you know it would be a positive impact but like we know that one person isn't going to change everything but it's this idea of a collective impact and so i think that you know we have a, an opportunity and responsibility to try to be changing in our own lives and encouraging other people to change in our own lives and getting, you know, politically active as well as much as we can so that 
our governments are making good decisions and our companies that we buy things from are making better decisions in favor of the environment. But what we know about climate change, right, is that there's, there is this inertia. And so even if we completely stopped all emissions in the entire world today, the climate is actually going to keep warming for a little while because that's just we kind of set things in motion. And so that can be really frustrating because you're like, no matter what I do, I can't stop this. And so to a certain extent, that's true. But on the other hand, we can have impacts that are going to, you know, in the next couple decades that like things can start to slow down and we're going to see like the degree of change is like how bad it's going to be is entirely dependent on us today. So that's one thing just to keep in mind from a global perspective. Then on like a very local perspective, you know, we can talk about things like, okay, well, how can we reduce pollution in our area? That makes it better for us to live. That makes it better for plants and animals and also pollution, like air pollution, which turns out like as dust, lands mm -hmm. on the glaciers and makes it melt even faster. So like, what can we do about that? So we can like try to reduce the amount of air pollution through how we heat our homes and how what kind of vehicles we're driving, whether or not we're taking public transport or there's industry. Those are a lot of really great questions. And then the last thing when it comes to biodiversity is that like we as mountain people who are adventuring and like I think the Alps is particular in this because there's like so many people who are wanting to get out in the mountains. There's just like so, so many people. And we have in order for these species that are, I would say, freaking out because the things are changing so fast is trying to respect the plants and animals as much as we can. And so that means like, you know, stay on the trail. Don't like, you know, go wander off everywhere. Don't leave trash places. Don't like let those animals kind of be where they are and and try to sort of disturb them as little as possible. And I think that's something that's really important for all of us to remember when we're out in the mountains is that like we're visitors. That's their home. We are, as humans, we're like, really changing. We're shaking up their home in a huge way. And the least that we can do is like not go bother them constantly while they're trying to rest at home. So you are not the cool and brave one if you step off the trail. You're just basically yeah. interfering with animal kingdom that you just shouldn't be doing <laughs> at this point. Yeah. And of course, I mean, you know, we do, we go places where, you know, we, we do go off trail, but it's like thinking about, okay, like, is there a way to go to that place where I'm like hopping rock to rock rather than walking through all of the vegetation? Mm -hmm. uh, or how can I, how can I minimize my own impact as much as possible? I think it's always a, maybe not always, but more and more a conversation that I, that I have around tourism in high mountains and the Himalayas are a prime example, the Alps just as well. Of course, everybody should go to the mountains and everybody should have the dream of climbing mountains. And that involves interfering with the environment. And at the same time, there might be this line where it's just too many tourists, too many people flogging into the mountains. How do you see that this of course, everybody should go and tourism in itself is a great thing. It helps. It also gives money that, that we can restore these, these environments and protect them in a better way. And at the same time, it's of course causing a lot of disturbance and harm. What's the, what's your view on that? 
I mean, I think it's it's challenging, right? It's this fine line that we need to walk and we need to see like, okay, well, you know, it's extraordinarily positive. It's really positive to have these experiences in these places, both as we talked about, like interacting with the natural world, getting out in the mountains and traveling and meeting people from different communities. I remember you saying, you know, how incredible it is when you travel and you just see how much you have in common with people and like the kindness of so many people. And I think that that's something that like we should continue to value. I think mm -hmm. that, you know, for me, one of the things I think about is like how can like understanding that I'm like going to go somewhere to glean a positive experience for me, how can I have a positive experience on where I'm going or in the very least minimize the negative experience I'm going to have. So for a lot of different kinds of tourism, you know, whether what we're talking about, like economic impacts, it's like, well, how can you make sure that if you're spending money in a place that that money is going to the local community and not going to tourism agency that's going to send it back somewhere else. And so the locals aren't actually benefiting. And then you know, when I'm in the mountains, I try to respect the leave no trace principles as much as I can and think about, well, how can I do this in a way that is going to reduce the negative impact? And then thinking also about like, well, can I, what can I learn about the local ecosystem when I'm there so that I understand how to have a small impact? And can I support if I'm in a position to, because not everyone is, but if I'm in a position to, how can I support like local conservation initiatives and people who are actively working to make sure that these spaces stay protected or scientists who are studying these things that can then inform the decision making about how many people do we let go there and how do we allow people to, to, to travel through these spaces? So I think that that's something that's really important. The other thing, and it's kind of funny because I don't, I was thinking about before this, this chat that about, you know, sort of what would I, what kind of advice would I give to, to adventurers or, or travelers? And I was thinking about it kind of particularly having to do with the, the record that I said on my blog last month. And, and part of it was that like, so many people I've had the chance to do, you know, a bunch of interviews and people love to ask the question. So what's next for you, right? Like, what are you going to do next? And I think that it's, it's normal. I, no one should feel bad for asking that. But I think that we should be asking ourselves the question of like, why do we need to always be looking to the next thing, right? Like, I am not, you know, setting another big goal for myself immediately because I want to rebel in this a little. I want to soak it mm. in. I want to like have my experience continue a little longer. And I don't think that's laziness. I think it, I think it is, you know, that when we travel, when we go on an expedition, if the experience and the richness that we get from that ends, like the moment we get home, then we're really missing something. We're cheating ourselves. And so for people who want to travel and who like go on these, you know, great adventures, make it last. Get home and look at your pictures and, you know, write about it and talk to your family and friends about it. And if you traveled with other people, talk to them about the experience and really make that last. Don't get home and say, okay, what are we doing next? And in terms of environmental impact, Making things last longer and even once we get home means that maybe we need to do fewer 
things and they're even richer. And so that was something that I wanted to share with you anyway that I was thinking about. Amazing. That's a, I think that's a very, very good advice, especially coming from someone like you who is a professional athlete. That means, and correct me if I'm wrong, this is your livelihood. You, if, if you break another record next month, that's probably good for you to do that in, in light of sponsors, in light of more engagement and so on. So I think that just highlights when this advice comes from you that you actually, yeah, you are a professional athlete that is, that is doing that for your living. And that is actually one, one more item I wanted to, to chat about this whole feeling being a professional athlete, which probably mm -hmm. now rings as a dream for many of the listeners. I want to do that. I want to be a professional athlete or explorer. And we will chat briefly then about what that feeling actually means. But do you remember the point when you became in your definition, a professional, was it like a definite point, a, a win, a contract signature where you, where you decided, okay, now I'm a professional? I think that for me, there wasn't like a, a very specific moment. I mean, I do remember like the first time I got a sponsor and it was like literally a pittance. I was going to get two pairs of shoes, like some clothes and a thousand euros for the year. And I was like, Oh my God, someone wants to pay me to do this. And it was just like, whoa. And then I realized, of course, like you can't live off that. And, and like little by little, I got to the point like first where, oh, like this, this sport that I love so much isn't costing me money anymore. So I've gotten people who are going to pay for the gear and who are going to, you know, pay for me to be able to go to these competitions. So it no longer costs literally costs me money and then finally moving beyond that but I think sort of like there are two things that happened for me one was getting sponsors who could support me but then the other part was also getting what I would say profession more professional about my training and how I was approaching the sport and saying like okay well now I'm going to like be following a more distinct training plan I'm going to be setting specific objectives I'm going to be really also making sure that I'm resting because that's something that I don't know to what extent people talk about this but resting is part of training and it's really really important to do and so integrating that sort of into the way that I was training was something that really was connected, I think, with the professionalization for me. And then it wasn't until so last year, a little over a year ago, was when I actually left my my regular day job. I was working at a, an environmental research center and I left that job to become a full-time athlete. And that, I think, was the first time that I was like, okay, now I can say it. I'm a professional. But I think that it was it was a process that like, you know, took took some time. Just a funny anecdote also for people, maybe it's encouraging. Your first prize that you got in a mountain race was, was a ham? Yes. Yes, that's true. <laughs> I, I, it was a small local race and the prize was a, a six kilo leg of prosciutto. <laughs> and I remember winning that and being like, oh my God, this sport is awesome. And... <laughs> I mean, the truth is that at this point, I, I don't eat much meat, but like that was still really, really special for me. And my husband was like, yes, 
you will do this for you. <laughs> Bring home the bacon every weekend. <laughs> that is hilarious. So is it is it right now that when you say, you know, professional, there comes you know, pros and cons with it. Is it the races where you say, okay, this is where I focus on? Or is it more these individual, yeah, now, now the Mont Blanc or individual activities where you then engage with your sponsors that you say, okay, this is my prime focus? For me personally, it's really a mix of both of them. And I think it'll depend a little bit. For other people, it would depend on the athlete, the particular athlete, or it would be depend on the sponsor that they have. So like some sponsors are going to say, we expect you to be at this race, this race, this race, this race. I'm lucky to have like a, have partners who are pretty flexible in terms of, you know, I can set my own goals. And they were completely ready to accept when I said, I'm going to take two months with no racing for this Mont Blanc project. And for me, though, it's like, it's really a mix. But what I would say is that everything that I do, for the most part, is because I find it intrinsically motivating. And so, like, they're... Like, the races that I choose to do, I'm only going to do races that, like, you know, I think the track is, like, really cool. And I think that, you know, the terrain is interesting. And, like, I find an intrinsic motivation to go run that race. I You're not going to see me at a race that is, you know, just because there's a high level of competition or there's a lot of prize money or... Yeah. There's going to be a lot of media there. That's not what personally motivates me. For me, there's usually some kind of connection for me that some way that I can, you know, connect it to my, you know, personal interests or passions or, or, or whatever. And so that's the case with the races that I'll choose. And it's also the case with the project. And I, I find balance between the two, but it's funny after, after doing Mont Blanc, I had people reach out to me who were like, oh, like, well, have you thought about doing Denali or have you thought about going to Kilimanjaro or like, what about this summit or that summit? And I was kind of like, I mean, those are surely cool places to go, but I don't have any personal connection with those places. And like, I need that personal motivation. I don't ever see myself just like being someone who would go all over the place just to check things off. It's like, I need to have a connection with it. And so I think that I'll continue to be, you know, as long as I'm enjoying myself, I'll keep racing and doing stuff, but certainly having the possibility of also being like, okay, well, like what kind of projects could, could motivate me? They'll both be in the mix, I think for a while yet to come. That sounds like a really, really good balance. And I'm I'm really happy to hear that because I had a lot of talks with the professional athletes and it seems like everyone shares a similar story that the sponsors are, and they all have different sponsors, are very, very forthcoming and prioritize the well-being of the athletes. And I think it's a great thing to hear that actually it, it is something that is well-respected in that environment and in that industry and That's, in my opinion, a very, very positive sign. Yeah, I, I think that is the case, especially, you know, for mountain athletes. I think that, you know, if they have sort of requirements, a lot of times it's like, well, like, you know, what's the, what's the story you want to tell about it? Like why, you know, like you want to go do that, you know, that race or a project, if it's something that you need support for, they want to know about like, okay, what's the story we can tell about it? Because at the end of the day, it's stories that really speak to people. Yeah, exactly. 
And well, in that case, thank you so much for sharing your story. And thank you for having me. It was it was such a such a pleasure to to talk to you. I really like your perspectives on how to approach the sport in in a very not judgmental way. And I think this is this is the great thing that many people can be quite judgmental when you know when when they do things a certain way. On in this case, are maybe a bit more protective of the environment. And I think yeah, really big thank you for for sharing your for sharing your view. I think it was absolutely absolutely wonderful to hear that, and also a bit what it feels like and what it's what it means to be a professional athlete. And <laughs> Thank yeah, you so much for having me. I, I love that this was able to sort of like, I didn't know exactly where our conversation is going to go. And I feel like, you know, really, really great about all the stuff that we got to talk about. So thank you so much for having me on and for your curiosity and, and, and you yeah. know, curious spirit. Yeah, absolutely. That's what makes these dialogues the best, just curiosity on all sides. And I have uh, one last question and it, is not what you're going to do next. Um, Great. <laughs> I I learned I learned that lesson now. No, it is it's a question I like to ask, and maybe not an always straightforward question. But if you were to go out into the mountains and you could only bring, either you can only bring one item, or you have one very precious item that just you always want to have, what would that be? What. So I, I'll explain just for a minute, like what's going in my head. I'm like, oh, is my, is my husband an item? I'd love to bring him with me. <laughs> but but I, and then I was like thinking straight, like just about survival and the fact that it's hot outside. And I was like, oh, I would bring like a flask with a filter of water. But I think if I, in some ways, if I could bring, you know, just like one thing with me, I feel like it would be something that would allow me to stay out there like longer. So like it could, it would depend a little bit on which mountain I was going to or, or what the weather was going to be like. But, you know, like I would love to bring, you know, a big warm jacket with me so that I could sit down, you know, where I was and just not move and just sit there and get to feel small, be comfortable and feel small being out there. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. And if you enjoyed the show, please, please, please subscribe or like or give some stars. It means the world to us. And if you want to know more about the show, about the World Explorers Collective, about our guests, make sure to visit worldexplorerscollective.com where you can find all the shows, where you can find all information about our grant and how to win it and more stories about inspiring adventure. And I hope I see you next time.